You're listening to audio from the Decidedly Podcast. For more information, find us on Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. So my office is on the 11th floor, right? All right. And when I moved into this office, I noticed that the window where one of the windows was cracked. Yes. And so that the, I, I noticed that too. Yeah, the exterior pane was cracked and so like water and condensation was building up and there was a puddle of water within the two windows. So it just it looked really grimy, filthy, nasty. Um and I mentioned to them, I said, you know, this place is great. Love to lease it. What are we gonna do about the window? Window's not so great. And uh they they kind of didn't commit to to fixing it and that's a that's a big undertaking yeah yeah i get it i mean we're on the 11th floor you gotta you gotta have a whole crew you know it's it's not it's not like you're replacing a a, a car window you're replacing a window on the side of a cliff 11 stories up. Yeah. yeah anyway they surprised me last week and came in and fixed it and i was very thankful and they kept uh, asking me every time they they kind of came in to check they're like, hey, we're going to be here tomorrow. We're going to be here tomorrow around 10 o'clock, you know, and then that morning we're going to be here in a couple hours. You know, we're going to fix it. And I started to get the feeling that they they were trying to get me to go somewhere else. And oh, that was that was code for get out. We're going to be there. Yeah, Get the heck out of this office. And I yeah. said, oh, no, I'm going to stay here because this oh, yeah, is the only chance I get to look at my office with no window in it. Yeah, the, there's an right. opportunity that I'm going to be able to stand here and just see directly outside to the ground with nothing in between me. And I Good. so I just sat at my desk and I worked while they replaced the window and it was fantastic. And when I when I went over to the to the guy who was uh, who had pulled the window off, I go with no safety harness or anything. I'm still like five feet away. But I said, I said, uh, you know, do you think I should jump? Just joking. But it made me, th- and I just wanted to mess with him and see if he could freak out because I know that he would, me even being there was like really not. But you, now you're entering that guy's world with that kind of joke. Oh, yeah, he did like he, it. He's anyway, not, think not the funny. point. The point was yeah. it reminded me of a quote that I'm not sure who it should be attributed to. Um, it, it, was, it was either Nietzsche or some other psychologist, but he said, when you stand at the edge of a cliff, you are not afraid you may fall rather afraid you might jump and that speaks to the ownership we have over our own decision making um but also sometimes the lack of control we feel for things that are entirely within our control and really in my opinion highlights the importance that decision making is the foundation of success and so today we talked to someone who knows a lot about decision making and a lot about success we talked to Dr. James Langebeer, he's a PhD in decision science, which I did not know was a thing until I met Dr. Langebeer, but he coaches leaders to improve their decision-making around wealth and health. He's trained as a decision scientist and behavioral economist, focusing on how we make important decisions as humans. He holds the Robert Graham Professorship for Entrepreneurial Informatics at the University of Texas Health Science Center. He's taught thousands of students in finance, leadership, strategy, systems management, and decision management at UT Health, Boston University, 
from the University of Houston. He's also coached 150 of the Fortune 500 CEOs on decision-making. I think you're going to learn a lot from this episode. We talked about avoiding analysis paralysis, forming your team to support your weaknesses, listing your alternatives within a time frame as decision-making framework. Uh, we talked about seeing returns as a decision more than just dollar signs, critical time intervention, and that there is no one-size-fits-all decision tree, unfortunately. I'm Sanger Smith with my dad, Sean Smith, and this is Decidedly. My whole life I've said there's no chance I'm going back to school. And then I hear about a doctorate in decision sciences. That's right. Maybe there's like one reason to go back to school. That would be it. (laughs) That would be the one degree. The the only one, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's there's a lot of useful degrees out there, I'm sure. What made you decide to do that? Well, I'm just kind of a decision making person. That's just like you guys, I guess. Um, you know, always been interested in how to overcome some bad decisions. I've made bad decisions in my life. I've also made a series of good ones, luckily. And, you know, I, um, early on studying business, we learned that management strategy uh, per Michael Porter and all these legends is really the stream of decision-making. And when I first learned that in undergrad, I really said, yeah, I can apply that to all aspects of my life, man, nothing but a stream of you know, you know, this pattern of decision making over time really decides a company's future or a person's future. It's not really one or, or you know, just one bad mistake. So I'm not going to throw anybody. So I really got interested in at that point and um, just studied it and researched it and teach it and, and um, just very interested in it. Yeah, I, I can agree 100% with that framework. I, I, that's that's the framework that we believe in, and that's the framework that I talk with my clients about. That yeah, really the the key differentiating factor in achieving success is the decisions that you make along the way. Not a not a, not the quality of the product that your company sells. Not you know how smart you are with uh, this particular program or or any one investment that you made. It's it's the decision making because the decision making in order to excel at that product, that investment, that this program, whatever it is, um, is more than simply one decision. Right. It's a, it's a, it's a series, an ongoing, ongoing series of decision after decision to make that successful. That's right. Yeah. I always tell people it's, you know, there's no one big thing that made Warren Buffett extremely successful or Jeff Bezos at Amazon. It's a pattern of things that they've done right over their time. And of course you're going to get some percentage of those wrong, you know, you may get 25% of your decisions wrong. But, um, you know, in my view, and I'm sure your view, we try not to look at the the outcome as much as the quality of the decision. So you might have a bad decision uh, outcome. But if you went through all the right process, if you got collaboration, if you did your research, if you did your analyses, yeah, then that quality is much more important than the outcome. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. You know, we've made that comment to so many people over the years. When we look at uh, decision making, you you judge the value of the decision, the quality of the decision making on that process, not in the outcome, because you can't control that outcome more than likely. But uh, when when you you know as a as a PhD in decision science, what advice do you give to people to defeat bad decision making? 
Well, so the big thing I I try to tell everybody is to seek out information. So, you know, we're overrun by information. There's thousands of people on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and LinkedIn trying to push information to us. And it's almost as if we have all of that information out there, but we still don't have the right information. So, you know, Kahneman and others will call that noise. It's all that noise in the environment. You're trying to figure out who's the person I'm really supposed to believe, who's the person I, I trust. And, you know, but I, I tell people to seek out high quality input. And that input has to be beyond the level of a salesperson. So I never trust what a sale, if, I'm, if you're trying to sell me insurance, I'm, I'm going to listen to you. I'm going to, I'm going to write things down, but I'm going to go back and do my homework. And so, you know, I really say we have to seek out information and seek out choices and choices is the big thing Our alternatives because the people that are successful have more than one alternative. And when we look at people over their lifetime and we see why possibly they weren't as successful, why they weren't as wealthy or healthy, a lot of times comes down to, they thought they were pinned into one alternative. And this is it. This is the path I got to choose because of my upbringing, because of my background, my education. I didn't have a choice. I did this. And when we're forced into a box, that's the worst thing from a decision outcome and a decision quality perspective. So I always say seek out alternatives, seek out other information and try to process it. At least spend a few minutes contemplating it before you do something. I I think that's great advice. And how do you make sure you don't fall into the trap of continuing to seek out additional facts and and data. I I see so many people, they just get hung up in that vortex of of data gathering. I know. I think that's a big thing. I think, you know, there's some of us that are just quickly, very intuitive and judgmental. And, you know, Max Bazerman, the the, kind of the founder of this judgment-based decision-making, is said there's, you know, people that are, are leaning towards this real intuitive. You tell me something, I trust you. I, you know, I, I see something in your eye. I, you know, my gut's telling me something and they'll go with it. And on the opposite end are these people that, you know, we call analysis paralysis and they, they'll dwell on things. And, and I, I have a lot of people in my own family, for instance, who literally I tell them my advice, I show them the data. And then two years later, I ask them what happened and they're still thinking about it. And I, you know, I think that this is a partly a behavioral problem, a psychological problem with people where they, they never will have enough trust in themselves and the quality of the information. So they can't pull a trigger. So, um, you know, we work on that a lot and that's kind of my background with, with both psychology and, and, um, and decision-making overall is really, you got to work on the level of, of how you're, brain is processing information and how to become a little bit more the opposite. If you're at one extreme and you can't, you know, you, you can't analyze anything because you just make a quick gut decision, you need to figure out how to lean a little bit towards the other way. And if you got too much info, you need to figure out how to lean a little bit more judgmental it, and make some quick decisions. Is it important? Is it important for people to change their natural tendencies or to surround themselves with tools that are going to allow them to explore the, the, strengths on the other side of their own weaknesses? Yeah, maybe a little bit of both. I mean, I, I think in order to grow and to really become good decision makers, we have to expand our the way we make choices. And, you know, it's not a weakness to admit 
you know, I've made some bad choices in life and maybe I should have done this yeah. differently. And I think that level of insight and, and looking back and, and trying to say, how did I go wrong? And, and deciphering, you know, I, I, I use the term a lot using a financial decision journal or just a decision journal and just write down a few things. What was my decision? What did I think about in advance of it? What was my emotion going into it? And, you know, and, and I like to record that. Was I very happy? Was I, was I mad? Was I sad? And what was the uh, way that I processed that information and was I happy with it? And, it? and just making a few notes like that, we can all go back and say, I think we can adjust our style. I adjust my style constantly. I used to be completely one way and I find myself moving more and more to another way. But, I, but on the other hand, you make a, a great point. Um, you know, we got to have the right tools too. We got to have good information. We need to know where to get the information, which is a tough part, but we need to be able to have good tools around us. So it's a little bit of both, I think. Yeah. In my own business, I recognize that my tendency is going to be to seek a lot of information, yes. but also that I, I'm not skilled or my strength is not naturally to organize things and really, really you know, build a process to arrive at a conclusion. Right. It'll be thoughtful and it'll be based on all the data, but I'm not building the process. Right. And so I, I have to have someone on the team, um, Dory, who is my, my biggest help and, and partner in the business to make sure that she, if I've got to be really thoughtful about a choice, mm -hmm. she's going to do that. And, and I don't know if I could change that about myself but you would be the one to convince me otherwise. Well, at least admitting that you aren't that person that can process it yourself and bringing that person in is a, you know, is really augmenting the process. So maybe you don't have to do it yourself as long as you have somebody on your team that you can go to a go-to person. And I think that's perfect. I mean, that's in, in management when we're, when, when I talk to CEOs out there, they'll often surround themselves with different kinds of yeah. people. And I think that's, that's what you've got to do. And, but that's recognition in itself that you have some, that we all have deficits in our ability to either be extremely, you know, understanding of the emotional side of an individual or the quantitative side or the computational side and recognizing those gaps and, and plugging somebody in to help you. That's awesome. That's what we all need to be doing. I think it's important to recognize those things about yourself. And, you know, the, when we look at uh, Colby analysis, which is a, a uh, cognitive analysis on how we strive to accomplish things, there are people who are high fact finders who want to engage with the facts and data more, more fully mm -hmm. versus somebody who might want to just look at the high levels. And then you look at what's called a quick start, which is how you interact with risk. And what I've found mm -hmm. is that there, when it comes to decision makers, there are people who, seek more data as you're talking about that if they are also uh low on quick start in other words they're sort of more risk avoidant yes. they really are challenged when it comes to getting to a decision whether it's a decision to do something or a decision not to do something mm. they have a difficult time picking one right whereas i'm on the other end of the scale i i seek uh, sort of more high level uh overviews of things and I tend to make decisions uh, fairly quickly. That, that's not to say I, I make yeah. them well. I'm not saying I make great decisions. Uh, I'm saying I make quick decisions. And sometimes those are the same thing. To, sometimes they're not. 
But I, I think understanding how you tend to interact with the process is key in recognizing when those things can be, when those characteristics can be helpful for you or unhelpful for you. So I think it's super important to know. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. I think, I mean, you're completely right. There's, you know, I tend to make quick decisions too, but I make them a lot less quick than I used to. And, you know, we'll call that rash or, or uh, intuition or judgment. And, but then stepping back, you can sometimes look back and say, you know, I just, I wish I would have gotten a little bit more piece of information before I would have said that, done that, bought that, invested in that, whatever the, the you know, decision was. Um, but yeah, and, and you know, it's, and it's tough to say too. It's like, what's the, there's no real optimal way, uh, prescriptive way of deciding something fast or slow, but you need to be adaptive to the environment. And, and I think as long as you, like we talked about, if you just focus on the quality of the decision, even if you made it super fast, if you went through your head, all the key elements, what were my choices? What are the costs and benefits? You know, am I considering all of the different aspects? What, am, what are the consequences of doing or not doing? And if I could quickly run through that in 30 seconds and come up with a decision, that's probably better than waiting 14 days to do the same thing and yeah. come to the same result. But it's tough. And we're all built different from a psychological perspective. In your professional opinion, what is what are the big components of a decision making framework that need to be in place? Ah, uh, well, that's a good question. So I think the big thing is, you know, we I like to lay out um, first of all, as in my training as decision scientists, we're trained to think very quantitative and computational. So, you know, this concept of a decision tree and, and map out various alternatives. Yeah. 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 And, and I think there's very great use in that. And I myself use a decision tree. Maybe I don't draw it, but I go through it in my head um, for almost every major decision. And I try to look at what are my options available to me? What are going to be the likelihood that something's going to happen? And I try to estimate some probabilities. And what are the kind of the, you know, we call them payoffs, but what are the, whether the potential returns for each one of these nodes? If I do this, this is the probability, this is um, the potential payoff. And if I do this, this is what it looks like. And I try to do that through my head. I don't, I no longer write code, write regressions, do extreme Excel analyses, although I do put everything in Excel when I'm making investment decisions, I'll make sure to run everything through models um, because it involves money and money is very important to me. But when things are less important and I just, you know, we're contemplating things, I think the framework really needs to be is for everyone to think through, write down, what are my list of alternatives I have at this point in my life? And make that as complete of a list as possible. That's the single most important thing. If I could lay out, uh, you know, we, we talk to a lot of young people. I have a, I, I run a lot of clinical trials as well on the health side of things. And I work with people that are have both mental health and substance use disorders. And they're, and they're not always thinking clearly. And they all, and most people think they're backed into a corner. This is my only path. And I yeah. really, if I could stress anything, it would be, come up with a complete list of alternatives. There's always more than one option available to you, always. I mean, do something and do nothing, that's two. So you know you have at least two available to you. What are the other things? And if you could 
just write down a list and then prioritize what you would most like to happen, then I think you'll be much better off than the average person who really doesn't contemplate well those alternatives and what they want to see happen. So we all have these, these preferences, you know, these values, and we really never, a lot of us don't really put those uh, preferences and values in line with the current choice we're making at that moment. And if we could do that, if we could say, what would put me in a better position long-term for my values, my goals, my preferences, and I could think that through at each decision point, you know, and I, I mapped out um, for the book that I just wrote, which is coming out in May, The Quest for Wealth, um, I was counting the number of dis- small and large decisions people make on a daily basis, and it's well over 150 per day. On average, when you look at the things you choose to do, the drinks you choose, the path you choose, yeah. the elevator, all these things, you know, some people say it's thousand, but in my small sample, we got about 150 average decisions per day. And if you could just think through those before doing it and just think through what puts me in the best position, what are my values, where do I want to go? I think we're all would be much better off instead of just seeing, doing, and then looking back and saying, I wish I wouldn't have yeah. done that. I, I can completely agree with that. It, it To align the actions that we're taking with our values is the only hope that we have of reaching that ideal place where we hope to be in the future. It, it does seem a little bit dangerous to, to task someone who might be a high analytical or fact finder person with um, the burden of writing every alternative. Right. <clears throat> so what, what does that process look like for someone who can easily get bogged down by having too much information. Yeah. Those with those people you work to, you know, synthesis is a is a very important strategic skill. And so I when I'm working with clients, for instance, I counsel people, okay, okay, okay. I didn't mean everything. I meant the major choices that you have available to you. And so we have to work with people to understand like what are the real big buckets? What are the big categories? Because you're right, people can get carried away. They can um they could, you know, I, I have a, uh, my stepfather actually is an engineer by training and as a mechanical engineer, if you ask him for a list of things, alternative, yeah, it's endless. Yeah. You'll sit there for months. So those kinds of people take a little bit more work, but just focused on, okay, I'm doing the 80, 20 here. I want to get the, you know, 80% of the, the, the value. So bring me the short, not the short list of possible choices at this moment. And, and I, and usually you can get to people and especially if you uh, do questionnaires and short time frame. we have 10 minutes to discuss this and let's try to come up with a, a condensed list of what your priorities are and where you'd like to go. Um, I mean, but it, you're right. It is really hard because we have, there's some people that are extremely analytical and would think about those kinds of things for way too long. You know, it's, it's interesting. You talk about getting the information. The, uh, I think you're, you're right about that. When, when we look at people who get analysis paralysis, you know, they're looking at, when we talk about investing, they get hung up on, well, which mutual fund should I buy? You know, and, and they, they're analyzing a lot of different ones, forgetting that the most important decision they made was I'm going to start investing. I'm going to do it in a fund and it's going to be a growth stock fund. After that, uh, the decision becomes less impactful. And, and so the amount of time you're spending on that part of the decision-making process is not providing the same utility that the early part of that decision did, which was to start 
started use it use this vehicle and use this type of vehicle uh which one is is not uh as uh, <laughs> as valuable the process i'm not saying it's not valuable i'm saying it's not as valuable. exactly but, no, you know, I, I, I like the i like the thing that you said when you were talking about looking what what, what your return is and what you're seeking from the decision and i think that so many times we assume that we know the answer to that. I was having uh, Sanger, you remember this. I was having, we were having a conversation with the mayor of, mm. a, of a large city, uh, mayor of Fort Worth. And we were talking about putting in a, a rapid trail ram uh, system. And she mentioned something yeah. about when evaluating this, we want to look at the return. Mm. And so I went to my financial advisor brain and said, Oh, she must mean the amount of tax revenue, the amount of uh, return, on a, in a monetary framework. And so I asked her and, and her answer was not that at all. It was looking at community involvement and connectivity uh, of the rails to people's lives. And I was like, that is so interesting when we start looking at things that there are different returns that we might be wanting or, or might be useful. So it's super interesting that you, and, you mentioned that. And I think that. that's another yeah. way of, of noting the point that you were making, James, which is that we all have different values. And so you were, you were putting in that moment, Sean, and I was right there with you sitting in the room with her going, Oh yeah. How are we making money as a city on this, <laughs> on this train system or whatever? But that was, we were placing our own values on a decision that someone else was making. Right. Mm -hmm. And she is placing a different set of values on it. Probably for the mayor of Fort Worth, a better set of values and yeah. why she's mayor and we're not, mm -hmm. but but that happens so often with so many decisions where we're, we're maybe we feel the judgment of other people putting values that are not our own. Maybe we we're putting our values into a decision. And we don't even know that we're putting our values into it. Yes. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think that that's a great example because the, you know, we're all built so differently and you know, your minds, my minds might go to finances, but other people are going to, you know, what's the risk? What are the, what are the potential upsides? What is the political gains? You know, especially these politicians who have to weigh all these things. What do my constituencies think? And if we could lay out our values and we could all understand them, like if I came to you and I said, well, I'm really focused on numbers and I want to talk about growth. And you're saying, I really want to talk about the emotional connectivity between our people, our groups. Um, we're kind of come from it at a totally different angle. And if we could come out and, and say that, and if we could we can somehow negotiate that in the decision-making process. We'd all be really a lot better off because we know where we're coming from, but we don't. And said we sit in rooms and we do these kinds of things and we think people care. And I was talking to one client and I was explaining to her, you know, all of the things that I look for in, in mutual funds. And, and, you know, I'm much more conservative type person. I just want long-term growth, um, not focused on income right now. And, they were really worried much more on the what kind of investments and are they green and you know and we have that whole thing in investing right now where people want to do sustainability and it really there and i was able to get it out of her but basically nothing that was tech um growth oriented you know they they weren't interested in any of those they wanted people oriented investments regardless of return and you know just understanding there's so many different kinds of people out there is really useful because we're not all the same and we're not all looking for the same kinds of things. So yeah, values yeah. and preferences are a big part of that. 
What do you think is the most difficult decision that people have to make? The most difficult in their life? Yeah. Yeah. From, from the perspective of someone who understands the science behind decision-making. So the probably the most difficult decision a person has to make is when it when the outcome is going to negatively extremely negatively and i'll say that because most of the behavioral finance and behavioral bias research suggests negative is much more important than the positive yep. so when the negative outcome is is something that could potentially destroy you so I would say the most important kinds of decisions we make, and it's what I tend to focus on is, is health and wealth. And so health being a big one is when we know someone could be dying, they've got cancer diagnosis. Those are the kinds of decisions where you really need to, to, to drill into the data and say, where should I be going? Who is the best treatment outcomes? You know, who are the best providers for this area? And then also, which could negatively destroy wealth? and um, major bankruptcies, major life events. And, you know, we have a theory in decision-making called critical time intervention. And it's basically that critical point in someone, a critical time in someone's life where they're most prone to kind of being vulnerable enough to make a major change. That critical time, it could be a birthday, you could turn 50, you could turn 21. Uh, it could be a life event, my mom died, my dad died, it, you know, whatever that is. I think that's when we're most most open to change, and that would be when we're really able to. We should be most open to be able to make that really really important decision. But I mean, I'll be honest. I love numbers. I love wealth and money. But the most important decision we probably make is around our health and what we choose to do, what we choose to put into our body, how we choose to work out, mm -hmm. and where we choose to get treatment. And I'm very passionate about getting people into providers and hospitals where they're the best and not where they're the closest. And so those are probably my answer. Yeah. Just to follow up on that, I was at a uh, conference a few years ago and uh, George W. Bush was speaking and somebody asked him a question similar to the question you were asking Sanger about tough decisions he had, he had made. And he said, you know, that by the time they got to him, those issues uh, all of the good choices were removed. In other words, he only had choices that were difficult. <laughs> <laughs> there was bad and worse, so you know, or bad and bad, and you, right. you've got to make that decision. Uh, if it was easy, somebody else along the way would have made it already. So that's it's a, a you know, yeah, that, anyway. Great point. I, I love the, um, you know, opening the Wall Street Journal every day and reading about what's going on with Ukraine and Biden. And I try to avoid watching CNN and Fox and all those things as much as I can, because I just get lulled into the negativity trap of what's real and what's not. But, I, you know, you read you read definitive newspapers that you think you can get good facts from. And I always, you know, I hear all these people talk on both sides and I am extremely apolitical. Uh, you know, Biden should do this, he should have done that, or, or he's doing the right things. And, you know, we shouldn't get into war. And I love to, to hear these different perspectives, because it's so easy for us to just sit back and make these judgments, when we're not the one that has to face down Congress, parents, 
um, our staff of people and military generals all surrounding us and and really be the one that's on that hot seat. And I think it's, you know, that goes to our real key. I We train in, in schools, we train people to analyze decisions, but until you're the decision maker and it's a decision of significant importance, you don't know what it's like. And all you can do is provide the data and try to soak in from that decision maker all that he has to to consider in that decision. And and these mayors and presidents and you know all these people making these decisions, I do not envy them. I wouldn't want to be them. And and I know mm. it's not nowhere near as simple as the people try to make it sound. Oh, for sure. You know, the, the, when when Sanger and I started this podcast, one of the things we wanted to do is to. Uh, pull in the collective wisdom from people that had, you know, interesting people, different walks of life, and look at how do we distill the decision-making wisdom that that those experts would bring to the table. And I, what I thought we would find on that journey was that there is a perfect decision tree. When you go down and you say, well, this is the decision, and it's binary, and you, it's a yes or no, and you do this, and you get the facts, and you, you know, and it's very clear. And uh, you know, had it been like that, I think we would have had about two episodes, uh, but, <laughs> and then solved the problem. <laughs> yeah, we were very disappointed at the beginning. Like, we we were. Uh, the framework. Where's the the pamphlet? Yeah, yeah. Where's the uh, the the five step process to uh, better decision make? And then you know when we look at the facts that you know as you were stating, there are hundreds of decisions that we make every day. Uh, I, I think there are a lot of them that we are helped by looking at how do we remove decision making from the our daily life through through certain habits, uh, heuristics. Right. Uh, you know, pre-decision making, making decisions so you don't have to make other decisions. But when it comes to those decision making uh, crossroads that are important, I'm not talking about do I want uh, Coke or Pepsi, or you know, the, yeah. but but really important decisions. My guess is there's a few of those each day where we really have to stop and think, yeah. and really look at reflecting on values. And I think that's important if we know what those values are. The so my question for you is what w what would you say would be your three tips to defeat bad decision making when it comes to those key decisions that that cause some pause and reflection? Yeah, I think that's key. I think um you know, I would say number 1 is journal. I you know, I would really create a decision journal and write down a couple of things you did that day that you thought you were were significant enough that you could revisit and, you know, what were the lessons I learned from that? And maybe I didn't learn anything. And I know a lot of people that look back and they never learn anything. And I, and I think those are the people that we really need to help the most because they can't see through it. But, you know, I, I would say too the, we often don't know the metric by which we're measuring a decision. So for instance, uh, most of the people that I, financially coach don't in in the early years don't really know the right metric and so the right metric for them is a reduction in monthly expenses so if i picked a mortgage if i picked a car payment that was lower than i have a yes. little bit more savings then that's the right metric and so just getting people 
thinking about what is your right metric. And, you know, and I'm not saying this is across the board financially, but most of us realize that from a financial positioning perspective, it's our net worth. It's, it's yeah. our assets minus our liabilities. And you gauge every decision on major decision on, did this improve my net worth? Not, did it move an asset around, an, you know, from a long term to a short term, or did it move from this to debt? That's irrelevant. Yeah, do I have a $500 a month car payment? Now I have 450. Exactly. It's great. I had a 12 months of that car payment, but it's okay. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And when you put that on, on your balance sheet, you realize that that accumulated debt plus interest is going to be a lot more significant to your net worth. But uh, people don't do that. So, I, you know, I would say use a decision journal. I would definitely say understand what your metrics are for success. And that aligns with your values. Where where are you really trying to position yourself? You know, in every choice I make, I say, does this make my life more stressful, less stressful? You know, I know my values. Um, does it make me richer or poorer? Does it make me more loved or less loved by my family? Does it get me closer to being kind of the person I want to be? You know, those are my metrics, my values. And if we all understood those, then then we could gauge our decisions a little bit better. So I'm at the point of making a car purchase and I say, wait a minute, before I just go in and buy that $72,000 Ford F-250 or whatever, um, where does this position me? And what am I going to have to give up in order to make this happen? And and, you know, do, will my family actually even fit in the truck when I bring it home? And, you know, so try to think through those kinds of things. I think that's really key. And the, you know, the third one, I guess, is to, to what you said, Sean, was really about the habits. And that is we get into these behavioral ruts, these, these patterns. Um, and, you know, these are neural networks. Basically, I love the saying, what fires together, wires together, and it's really true. The more we do something, the more we're going to do something. And that's called a habit. And so our brain becomes wired to, you know, whatever that is. And, and if you could figure out a way to step back from that habit, and well, first up, recognize that you're doing it. Wait a minute, I'm doing the exact same thing I did yesterday. Maybe I should do something different. And if I could find a way to rewire that habit, then that would be really where I want to go. Because some habits obviously are, have some value. They shortcut so, so decisions. What, what kind of habits are you talking about that, that would aid in decision-making? So a habit that would aid in decision-making would be one where, um, you know, and a lot of people would say this, where I'm really good at making gut intuition on someone. I, I can read them, I can, you know, and, and that would be a habit. I get into it. I see your okay. face. My habit is, yep, I trust you and I'll do it. And... Um, so some of these things are really good habits would be, you know, simple things would be setting a coffee timer. So every morning you have coffee when you wake up at seven and you don't have to go downstairs and make it. Maybe that's a good habit, but we have a lot of negative habits, of course, as well. Um, mm -hmm. you know, substance use, too much gaming, whatever it is. And they all have detrimental effects on decision-making. So, um, you know, I, I try to always shake things up. I have, I have the same drive into work every day, but I try to do a different route to make my brain think a little bit differently. If we could do that with every kind of choice we make before we go in down to the same store every day and buy our coffee or whatever, I think that our brain be, uses a lot more of these neurons than we have because in habit basically forces us from using billions of cells down to a couple of pathways. And, and that's really bad from a decision-making perspective. 
So open to perception, perceptions and different perspectives. I think that was. So how was how is that bad for decision making? It would seem like if I can develop some habits that can conserve mental energy uh, and aid in my decision making by making fewer decisions, then that I'm better off at the end of the day in terms of utilizing decision making energy. Am I misunderstanding what you're saying? No, I mean I think you're, you're. I think you're right. So if we look at ourselves as a a automobile battery and and we have a, a fixed amount of, of uh, bandwidth or cells and then what we would want to do is we would want to conserve as much as we can in some areas so that we can really expend in others and and that's true i mean i i do want to do that i don't want to have to think through every single thing like what am i eating today and let me outline 15 options that's bad um, right. That's too much brain processing power. But on the flip side, our brain isn't a battery. Our brain is is really infinite and in terms of its capacity. And opening that up allows for creativity to come into the process. So habits force us into patterns, stability, routines. Routines are not one where you're going to see a sudden transformation, radical growth, uh, a breakthrough. You only see that when you get into creativity and and habits. And the reason I don't like a lot of habits is, I mean, I, we all do them. I do them. I have hundreds of habits I do daily, and I think about them all the time, thinking I shouldn't do this. But my point is, if we break through habit, habits, we expand, actually, the way our brain is thinking. We have so much more uh, power in our brain to handle this and it allows in more creativity into decision making. So, I mean, I would agree with you completely, Sean. We want to, we want to limit or conserve the amount of time we're spending on some things, but in other areas, we really want to expand that. We want to think a lot more about big purchases, negotiations, uh, decisions about, uh, should I move? Should I get a new job? You know, those kinds of things, that's where habits can't come in. You can't make a big big decision based on a habit of I've always done it. I'm not. I'm going to turn down this promotion because I can't handle a management position. So you're you're completely right. But it, but habits also have a good and they have a bad side. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense because I, everybody who's successful that I that I know has a routine. They have a routine, right? Um, but when I talk with my friends who are successful, that a lot of them. Um, hate the routine as well. Like you, they love it so much that they hate it. Yes. And so it's, it's how can I find something to do differently <clears throat> every now and then to, to switch it up? Yeah. I think we need that from a, from a psychological perspective, we need to be refreshed and living completely on routine pretty much is what we do six out of seven days a week or, you know, 90% of the time. And I think just allowing a little bit of creativity in, helps decision making. And that's really why we build diversity into teams is because we're not all the same. We're not all doing the same thing. And, and that opens up teams to, to help possibly make some better choices than maybe I would have made on my own. Cause you're right. I read people, you know, like atomic habits and Brendan Bouchard and other folks who write about their morning routines and they get up at five and they always do breathing for 10 minutes and do yoga and you know, drink coffee only, you know, only green tea or whatever. There are some good things and you know exercise every day there's things we need to have habitually in our life and habits can be really good but we could do them at a different time of a day we could shake it up a bit 
And every time we shake something up, we cause our brain to rewire in possibly a better way than we had wired it in the past. And we really don't know. It's the same thing with decision outcomes. We really don't know the best way to do something. If there was, we would all follow that same daily pattern that that somebody used. You know, we'd all want to do what Jeff Bezos did. Would we though? Would we? Because I feel like (laughs) there's a lot of people that wouldn't. I feel like there's a lot of people that if you, if you got the top 1% of successful people in the world to all say, oh yeah, I do that exact same thing. You're going to have a good chunk of people that just don't do it no matter what and don't even try. Oh, I know. Yeah, I think (laughs) Well, that that information's out there, right? I mean, you know, we we know that uh, being mindful, uh, doing a morning routine, uh, doing some meditation helps clear the, the clutter in your mind which right. can help you make better decisions if you have that uh, that clarity of thought. And, you know, right. As long as you're reflecting on your values, you know where you're wanting to go. Um, so we know that, right? And, and it's uh, it's amazing the amount of people who don't or not self aware enough to recognize that their their mind is cluttered. You know that their right. mind is just wired wrong. And that gets into that gets into the kind of the negative side of habits. Is we know that there are things there are positive practices that we should incorporate. And yet, because we live a habitual life, we don't incorporate those. And so before coming on your podcast, I did 10 minutes of meditation and I listened to a pranayama app. And I, I actually do that. I you know, completely believe in mindfulness. But on the other hand, I probably haven't done that for four out of the last seven days. So even though I know it's really important and I value it, I don't, yeah. because I'm in the habit of doing all these other things, we just forget about it. And so, um, yeah, but you're, but, but saying your point is, yeah, if we gathered everyone around and they tried to tell us all, we, I, we probably wouldn't ever get consensus anyway. I love to watch people like on Shark Tank and, you know, five extreme billionaire rich people and never do they agree on the same things about what yeah. makes firms successful. And and I think that's life. I think that's what we face. So it's really based on us. What do we want? Where do we want to go? And not what do they all want from us? Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. Well, I, I learned so much uh, today, James. So I, I really appreciate you being on. Before Thank we wrap up, any any last pearls of wisdom for, for listeners? Ah, you know, my pearls of wisdom would be, I just listened to your podcast from Tom Kelly, the comedian, and I loved his, uh, um, his interpretation of the Chris Rock, Will Smith thing. And, you know, I guess it would be, (laughs) (laughs) which which is, excuse me, which is a phenomenal case study in decision-making at the individual level, I think. But I really, you know, one thing I would just stress is, there is no one size fits all to decision, the science of decision making. There's a lot of noise out there. And your goal individually is to find out what means the most to you and to really reflect on that. And I think we don't spend near enough time really reflecting on what are our goals, not just financial goals, but our goals overall, where do we want to be? What would we love to do? And and what are the things we want to accomplish in our lives? And what are the legacy I want to build? And, you know, if nothing else, draw or write down a simple vision board of two, three, five, ten things that you want to get done. And if you 
it, you know, Peter Drucker, if you can measure it, it can get done. You know, I really believe that. So write it down, figure out what are those things you really want to get done? What are the major buckets in life? And then make sure to try to align the everyday decisions with those big categories. And I think we'll all be much more successful if we can do that. Completely agree. Where can people find you and and learn more about how to defeat bad decision-making? I'm at James Langabeer. So Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, all at James Langabeer, L-A-N-G-A-B-E-E-R, or my website, www.jameslangabeer.com. Hey, thanks a lot. I appreciate uh, all your wisdom and thanks for sharing it with us. So my takeaways from our discussion with Dr. Langebeer, it, it really, there are two. One is when he talked about seeking out quality information from the right people, I think that is, that's critical. And I think when we look at that type of information that people seek out, it's not predictive, but more facts. You know, if you ask five economists, what the, the what the economy or market's going to do, you're going to get six different answers. So I think getting the, the facts information, getting the right information from the right people is uh, is key the other was knowing what your metrics for success is knowing wh- what is the outcome you're trying to accomplish the goal you're seeking uh before you start that decision making process i think those are the two takeaways that i had what interested me the most was when he talked about critical time intervention i had never heard that phrase um i looked it up after the conversation ended and there's an entire website dedicated to critical time intervention criticaltime.org what was interesting about it is that he he focused on how the toughest decisions are made when there is a severe negative consequence that could happen. Uh, you know, there's a very low floor on how bad things can get. And um, I can definitely recognize that in my own life and recognize that in the lives of my clients. And he, I think it was a really important reminder and he articulated that um, the importance of the negativity in decision-making frameworks probably better than I had heard before. Thanks for listening to this episode of Decidedly. I hope you learned something. I know I did. If you thought our show was five-star worthy, please check us out on iTunes and give us a five-star review. It really helps out a lot, helps people find our community and defeat bad decision-making in their own lives. Check us out at decidedlypodcast.com and on Facebook and Instagram at decidedlypodcast. Until next time, I'm Sanger Smith with Sean Smith. This is Decidedly. Insights, advice, and comments provided by Sean Smith, Sanger Smith, and speakers identified as part of the Decidedly podcast should not be considered recommendations. Speakers who are not identified as members of Decidedly are expressing their own opinion and their statements should not be construed as reflecting the views of the Decidedly team. This podcast is produced solely for informational purposes, not personalized advice.